This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon. I'm here with uh, Jarrell Garcia. Jarrell is a 10th Planet Black Belt. Uh, I think you got your Black Belt under podcast guest and friend, Zach Manslani. Yeah, yeah. With the, uh, with the endorsement of Eddie Bravo. For sure, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, exactly. And if I'm not mistaken, you're a New York native, but you've made your way to Pennsylvania, trained with Zach, and, and I think you're in California. Yeah, Santa Barbara, California right now. That's awesome. And you are a doctor of education. Yeah, as of September, last September, officially. Big year for you last year between getting your black belt and your doctorate. Yeah, and, and I had a kid last year, too. So Oh, my wife did. congratulations. Yeah. I had a, my yeah. second last year. Oh, congrats. Yeah, it's a whole, whole new world. Yeah. So let's rewind. Uh, Jarrell, let's kind of start us at the beginning. Where are you from in New York? Uh, what's been your journey like? And uh, bring us up to how you got started in jiu-jitsu. Yeah, so, yeah, Jarrell Garcia, originally from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, and I, I like to say, like, Brooklyn when it was still Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so originally from Brooklyn, New York, um, Grew up there, uh, child of two immigrant parents who were originally from Jamaica, uh, played soccer for the most of my life. So we spent like probably my first 10 or so years in, I'd say the inner city of New York, and then we moved to the mountains of Pennsylvania. So it's like a drastic uh, where, where in switch. Uh, Canarsie. Oh, yeah, that's where Canarsie. my mom is from and all my relatives. Yeah, yeah. yeah so... Um, yeah, so I finished out in Canarsie, and then we moved to like the mountains of Pennsylvania. And I always like to make the joke of like when I was in Brooklyn, everyone that had a gun shouldn't have had a gun. And then in Pennsylvania, you had like teachers bringing guns to school to show you because it was the first day of hunting season. You know, I mean, it was like <laughs> drastic, drastic difference of culture shock. Um, but yeah, so I moved to the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, so that's like northeast Pennsylvania, like thirty minutes past the border. Uh, Continued playing soccer, uh, went to school. Uh, when I was deciding to go to college, I was choosing between going into actually culinary arts or sports and studying sports. And ultimately decided with sports, I went to Lock Haven University for my undergrad, which is like a big wrestling school. And um, my that was kind of where my introduction to jujitsu, more so martial arts, started because. Uh, I have an older brother who's in the army and you know what older what, what siblings do when they get together we like wrestle and fight well he does combatives training for the army and military so he comes home to visit one time and he takes my back and puts in a rear naked choke and he's like tap i'm like this isn't the movies you can't put me to sleep like that's not a real thing and uh yeah he put me to sleep <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. I didn't know that was real. So, um, yeah, that was, after that, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start training. And uh, a small MMA school opened up in Lock Haven. So I started training with them, started training with some wrestlers in Lock Haven. Um, decided to move from MMA. Didn't really care for the environment. And the coach wasn't the best at that time and started purely focusing on jiu-jitsu. So I started training in Penn State, once again, a bunch of wrestlers as well, but I uh, started training in Penn State at a jiu-jitsu school called Central PA Mixed Martial Arts under um, Ryan Grun. And yeah, so it was probably since 2010 that I was strictly thinking only jiu-jitsu, 
but I technically started training like 2009. Um, since 2010, strictly jujitsu. So I trained with Ryan for about a year, year and a half, and then moved back home to finish up to start my master's at East Stroudsburg University in Northeast Pennsylvania. And uh, I was just hopping between gyms, a couple of gyms locally. And then I saw that planet had opened up in Allentown. Zach and Jim, and once again, I think they were blue or purple belts maybe at that time. And um, I remember like looking up Eddie on YouTube back in like 2010 and like buying his book, Mastering the Twister. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I dropped in, visited them. They were super, like super welcoming. And I was like, cool guys, y'all are cool, but I'm actually gonna leave out for California because I was doing a little bit of work in California. I was like, I'm gonna be back, I promise I'll be back. And anyone who's been training jujitsu long enough, we've, we've seen tons of people come in and go, I'll be right back. And you never see them again. <laughs> so uh, I was like, yeah, I'll be right back. Left. Yeah, exactly. So left, trained in California, came back and I was like, all right, I'm 10 planet through and through. So essentially since 2013, I've been with 10 planet. I got my blue belt from Zach and Jam. And then I moved to California officially and I was training in the Bay area at 10th planet Walnut Creek with Alex Kanders. He promoted me to my purple belt and my brown belt. And then I just moved to Santa Barbara about four or five years ago. And uh, apparently this was told to me, there was like conversations of like, right, well, who's giving Drell his black belt? Like, is it, yeah. does Kanders give it to him? Does he's coaching next to Jeremiah Vance at 10 Planet Santa Barbara? Does he give it to him on behalf of Eddie? Like what happens? And uh, Zach and Jim were like, nah, he, he's, he's Bethlehem, 10 Planet Bethlehem. So uh, <laughs> when I went back home, they uh, gave him my black belt. So. Wow. It's kind of the longest short of uh, how, I've, how I've kind of gotten here. It is pretty cool that how connected the 10th Planet crew is all over the country and they're talking like that and Eddie stays so involved. I love to hear that. Oh, for sure. Like we, we literally have a group chat, which is <laughs> complete chaos, <laughs> but like it's just kind of promotes that family of like, hey, this person's coming through or this person's trying to get promoted or hey, can you represent me as you go and visit the school? So yeah, it's, it's definitely an actual community. Yeah, I miss the uh, the EBI Invitational. You know, I think that was the one of the most exciting times for jujitsu, uh, no gi jujitsu, submission only jujitsu, and mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like it's hard to run a business. You know, I'd heard Eddie talk about it many times, like he wasn't making a lot of money from it, and but yeah. the the quality of the matches and the people he was getting, and then it kind of birthed. You know, Kasai was on the heels of that, and um, mm -hmm. a bunch of other you know, promotions and now kind of like who's number one, I guess, is the taking the spotlight, but I don't, it doesn't seem to be consistent. I don't know what's going on with the sport right now. You have any feelings on that? Yeah. So one, uh, EBI is coming back this spring, which is super exciting. Um, and I think it's starting with the 155ers. We know that's yep. a super exciting way to class. So this spring that's going to be, dope. but um, like, even though our sport has come a long way and we all feel like it's come a long way, it's still very young as a professionalized sport. You know what I mean? If we really think about sports in this country, um, Jiu-Jitsu truly doesn't have a long history, once again, from the professionalization of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're still, in the, we're still in the day where you and I can get together and go, let's put on a huge event. Yeah. And then we don't have a five, 10 year plan. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that's what we're seeing is um, like the, the dot-com boom. We're seeing a bunch of things pop up mm -hmm. that look promising and people invest in it. Um, whether it's uh, time, money, or even competitors investing in it, and then it kind of dies off. You know what I mean? So uh, I yeah. think as we continue going, we're going to see the ones that kind of are just consistent, and those are going to be the mainstay of our sport. But um, 
yeah, we're, we're still young as a, as a whole. So yeah, we've, we've progressed so far, but um, imagine what the sport's going to look like even in 10, 15, 20 years, um, both yeah. from the com- competitor standpoint, but even from the business standpoint. So it's, yeah, it's, we're um, young, we're, we're in our infancy. It definitely, I completely agree. Maybe toddler, maybe to- toddler or teenager, yeah. somewhere around there. Um, as a competitive sport, it might be still in its infancy. But uh, yeah, yeah. when I started doing jiu-jitsu at the same time as you in 2009, uh, and I would be traveling all over the country for work, you and I spoke offline yesterday. I was in Texas, and I was traveling yeah. all over Texas. When I started going to Texas, uh, South Texas especially, there'd be maybe like a school here and there. Um, mm-hmm. But now everywhere I go and travel, there's four schools, five schools. Yeah, and uh, and I drop into those places and I train, and it's just amazing how far the sport has all of its tentacles. And people keep opening up academies, and I've actually had a number of tenants because I'm in the real estate business who have been uh, jujitsu academies. So, just in uh, this will be I'm in my twelfth year of jujitsu. I think you are too. In 2009, right? Come yeah, thirteen yeah. years in August for me. Um, it's changed so much, and it's grown so much, and there's so many people who do it now, and Thank the almighty Joe Rogan for, you know, <laughs> crossing over into the mainstream or whatever you want to call it. Exactly. Yeah, people kind of understand jujitsu a little bit better and, under, and and kind of understand what it is as it relates to maybe the UFC and MMA. But I'm just so excited to see to see the sport grow. So are you um, focusing on jujitsu full time? Are you running a school? What What is your career? No, so uh, and it's always a, fun, a funny thing. People like assume that. Um, like jujitsu is my thing, but I have to have a full career that I love. It's not like I'm doing that to hopefully become a gym owner one day. No, I love my yeah. career and I'm doing it for the rest of my life. Um, so yeah. I'm the assistant director of um, all recreation um, operations at UC Santa Barbara, University of California, wow. Santa Barbara. Uh, so I oversee how we all operate for the rec facilities on our campus. It's like 26,000 students. Um, so yeah, so it's like 14 facilities across the whole entire campus. It's open to community members and everything along those lines. So that's what I went to school for. So all my education is in um, sports administration, which is the teaching of sports and the developmental uh, development of sports mm-hmm. um, and how it impacts society. And then uh, my master's was in sports management, which is the business side of sports, right? So everything from sales, marketing, facility management, uh, law, um, and then my doctorate that I recently received is in educational leadership with the emphasis on athletic administration. So um, my particular dissertation, my research focuses on uh, transferable skills. Right? So from being an athlete to going into business or being an athlete and going into these different areas of life and athletic identity. So I'm more into the sports psychology aspect of uh, sports. Well, that's a big part of the book that I'm writing. So I'm really happy that we connected. Um, yeah. you know, this, this whole entire project is about all of the people who would come to me on my team or in the jujitsu world. And they want to ask me questions about business. They knew I was an entrepreneur. They knew I had multiple businesses and they'd want, they'd have some dream, you know, they want to open a t-shirt shop. They wanted to, uh, flip a house. They wanted to just do something and they would be phenomenal at jujitsu or at least understand the basic principles. And I would be breaking down business to them with jujitsu principles. And it's just yeah. fantastic how transferable the, the, those arts are. And one of the things I talk to people a lot about on this podcast is, and I spoke, I remember speaking about this with Jimmy Pedro, U.S. Olympian, Travis Stevens, U.S. Olympian. And we were talking about what's life like after the Olympics? What's like life like after 
professional, you're a professional athlete and now you want to go start a business. So that's interesting that you studied that and, and did a lot of coursework around it. So what's, what's your central thesis and in, in, in all of your work? So it's, it's both good and bad. It's both good and bad, <laughs> right? So yeah, like anyone who's participating in sports, we all grew up with understanding or at least the thought and what's been promoted to us is sports help you develop as a leader and teamwork and goal setting and communication. Like sports has the ability to teach you these things, right? Um, but what we've been finding is that um, it's not automatic, right? So just because you are a great communicator, great leader, teamwork, goal setting as an athlete doesn't mean you'll naturally be able to transfer that over into being a quality real estate agent, right? Or being able to become uh, competent in running your own business, you know what I mean? Um, so there's like levels to it, right? It's great, I know I'm doing it here, but if I'm not aware that I'm actually learning those skills, it's very difficult for me to transfer it over, right? So mm -hmm. as you're kind of saying, like uh, having conversations with people and, and drawing the connection for them, the bridging that you're doing is huge, right? Because they may not actually make that bridge themselves. Right. And that's what we often thought was like, oh, yeah, automatically you're a team captain, you're all state and everything else along those lines. You will be a great leader in this other field. And it's not automatic. We either need mentors or people to draw that bridge for us or we might be able to do it by ourselves. You know what I mean? But it's not an automatic thing. Um, so that's probably the biggest takeaway is and why I kind of harp on a lot in a lot of my uh, videos that I, I kind of talk about uh, with my students after classes great if we're good at jiu-jitsu and everything it takes to become competent at jiu-jitsu and earn each belt but it means nothing if we can't transfer it over into being a good spouse or a good parent or a good supervisor or a good community member or what have you you know what i mean so we have to be proactive and actively trying to bring that over otherwise it stops as soon as we get off the mat you know what i mean so i know exactly kind of what the you mean. yeah and not only do i know what you mean but i completely agree with you uh in my the book that I'm writing, I, I call that uh, a technical framework for getting better at things. And one of the mm. things that jujitsu taught me so well is it has this technical framework, right? You show up, yep. you warm up, you get taught a technique, you drill that technique, then you practice it in live training, then you end yep. class, you talk about the philosophy of it in the mat chat, and then yep. you do it the next day. Now, in business, when people start their business, they show up every day and they try something new or they go to work and do a job over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And they forget to continue that learning process. They say, exactly. I'm just going to, I'm just going to show up today, you know? Um, and how you mentioned about mentorship, I, I think the sensei, professor, teacher, whatever you want to call it in your gym, to have that mentor who has been there before to showing you the path, illuminating yeah. a technical approach, is so beautiful. So I'm so happy to hear you talk about it. And uh, one of the things I often tell people, because I have this all the time, especially with people who, you know, in my house, I grew up with it. I grew up in a house of entrepreneurs. So I, I don't take it for granted. I'm very aware that I was lucky. I'm very aware that I got a, a, a huge leg up and a, and a big springboard. But when I talk to people who, who didn't have that as a, in their house, maybe, I yeah. tell them a mentor doesn't have to be a, an official partnership. You know, some yeah. of my greatest mentors have been dead for 2000 years. Some of my greatest mentors, <laughs> I only met, I only met or spoke to once, you know, they just said one thing to me and that was so powerful. So, um, who have your mentors been, you know, who are some of the people that pushed you in the direction of maybe college master's doctorate? Yeah. So first and similar to you, like, a, 
we we oftentimes uh, I guess uh, dim diminish the term like luck, right? It's because they almost feel like oh, it's taken away from the hard work. It's like no, it doesn't mean just because you're lucky means you didn't work hard, right? Um, it just means it plays a role, right? And so first it was definitely like my parents, and I had to point out uh, when I talk like personally about my parents, it's like one, my dad, I don't even think he finished high school. Right. Uh, but then went on to be upper level administrative in a national, uh, actually worldwide, like a uh, national energy company. Right. Wow. Um, and then my mom, uh, she had her first child literally in high school and then still pursued her education. Right. Wow. So for me, both my parents, even though they had different views of education, one, my dad's like, you can accomplish anything even without education. And my mom's like, education is important. There's no excuse. It was always <laughs> a matter of no matter what you can accomplish anything. So that was my yes. basis and my foundation, you know what I mean? Um, so my undergrad, um, I wasn't an outstar, uh, like an outstanding student. Honestly, I almost uh, got dropped out because um, my grades, because I just wasn't trying. Um, yeah. And I had a, had a quick little quick kick in the butt. And then I was, um, I'll just say, I, I turned around. And that's actually when I started getting more involved in jujitsu. Because I was like, yeah, I'm doing great in jiu-jitsu and be recognized here, but then I'm slacking in class. Like, why? Like, why don't I just practice like I'm like I'm doing? Right. So it was me making that transition. Um, but then probably one of my biggest mentors was in graduate, uh, yeah, with graduate school or before I went to graduate school, technically, is a professor named um, uh, Robert Fleischman, right, Dr. Fleischman. And I had a meeting with him because uh, my I had mentioned to my advisor, hey, I think I want to open up a gym one day or run a gym and they're like, all right, cool. I have a guy, his name is Bobby Fleischman. Go talk to him, just go talk to him. I was like, all right, fine, I'll go talk to this guy. A 30 minute meeting turned into a three hour long conversation. Mm. And this guy convinced me that I could go to grad school. And that was like the first person outside of my parents that made me think like I could accomplish anything, right? He's like, yeah, you, wow. like I'm looking at your grades. You have the grades, you have the character and the personality and the drive, like you can become, you could go to grad school. And so he was the one that just kicked it off for me. I ended up earning a graduate assistantship, which pays for your school. Um, so I worked at the rec center as well as being the graduate assistant of the sports management department. And he kind of pushed me along. And then my supervisor at the rec recreation center where I worked, his name is uh, Joe Acob at East Strasburg University, small school. Um, his kind of mentor moment for me was um, I was about to graduate. He's like, all right, so what's next? Where do you want to go? And I was talking about what I thought were realistic opportunities for me and non-realistic opportunities for me. And I said something along the lines of, yeah, it's not like I could become some type of director in a school in California one day or something. And you would have thought I just spit in his face. He's like, I did not invest <laughs> all this time in you for you to think that you can accomplish this and this and have these shortcomings. And he like tore into me. Yeah. Um, so it was like another moment of someone believing in me even more than I believed in myself. You know I mean? That seems to be like the common trend there. So after that, um, yeah, I moved to California, worked my way up, um, ultimately got that director position <laughs> at a big school in California, uh, which that was a funny phone call. Like, Hey, you're totally right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So those were probably the two biggest ones when it came to my education. Um, and then me, once, when I was graduating, I, I said, I'm going to become a, a doctor before I turn um, 30. That, that was what I wrote down. Um, and it went right next to my thing that said, I'm going to get my jujitsu black belt within 10 years. Um, wow. 
so yeah, so it was, the, it was those moments and then going through my doctor program and yeah, so those have probably been the biggest mentors. Started with my parents, but then we've had these moments um, that have really just stuck with me. Yeah, that's, that's so beautiful. Um, I'll tell you one moment of mentorship that I had that I think is relevant here because I had a lot of incredible mentors and like you, I wasn't a great student. Uh, when I was in high school or college, I was actually a very good presenter and good at projects, but I can't, I still have a very hard time taking tests, but I've continued yeah. to pursue education. But one of the best mentors I ever had is a guy named Keith Miller. Keith Miller is a legendary private equity investor. He's invested in some of the biggest companies that we all would know. He was the money behind companies like Supreme and All Saints. Mm. Uh, he bought a company called Intermix and sold it to Gap. Uh, Dave's killer bread. I mean, he's just a le in his world, legendary, but he's not someone that normal. He's not a celebrity by any means. But um, I was connected with this guy early in my career when I was around 28 years old. I'm um, 36 now. And I was had some early business success, you know, had a growing business. I thought I was hot shit, had a little bit of an ego. And I remember I went into this meeting with him and it was all pleasantries and niceties and talking about and uh, towards the end of the meeting, he just started grilling me questions about my business. And I didn't have the answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. um, and he just looks at me straight in the eyes and he goes, Jordan, you're a nice kid, but you don't know enough about your business. And I was like frozen in my seat. Um, yeah. I walked out of that meeting. I was standing outside, looked at my partners, and I said, I'm going to go get the answers to those questions. And I had that was a critical moment in my life because I could have been like, fuck him. He doesn't know what he's talking yeah, about. I'm successful. Shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've had a successful business, but I knew enough to know to listen when someone's trying to tell you something. And he didn't mean it in an insulting way. He meant it in a way of trying to help me. And uh, I went and I called a consultant of mine at the time, Margot Kotman. Shout out Margot. And I said, this guy asked me all these questions. I didn't know the answers. I wrote them all down and I, you can't see it, but I have it right here on my, my pin board behind me. I have those four questions that he asked me. And um, that was my only meeting with him. I've spoken to him on the phone over the past seven or eight years, two or three more times. And he, every, every time I've spoken to him, it's been some gem that he's dropped in my lap that has helped propel my business forward. Um, he's one of my best men, you know, he's one of my greatest mentors. If only, yeah. I've only shook his hand once. <laughs> and I think that's a really important thing for people to understand is like you have these moments in your life where people can come in for just one second and say one thing that can alter your life forever. And um, yeah, I'm very, I'm very fascinated by people's relationships with mentors and people who've had that success. And then I also, the reason why I like to talk about it on this podcast is because so many people haven't had that moment yet. Yep. And like maybe this story or your story is their moment of their self-realization, like and I, I say this often, I wrote about it in my first book, is like, you're being the asshole. It's like, not everybody else. You're yeah. the asshole. You know, you're the one that has to change. Everyone else doesn't have to change. Everyone else doesn't have to. You know, you always see those people that are always so sorry for themselves. And there's a thousand reasons why they haven't gotten their purple belt yet. Or yeah, a thousand yeah. reasons why their business hasn't started. Or they've been four different careers. They were a car salesman. They were a realtor. They were in marketing. Just if you can recognize that you're the obstacle in your way, then you can begin to get past it. And uh, so, so funny you say that because um, I obviously I supervise a, a large staff, like over 120 employees, and I hand select someone to directly mentor. I technically mentor everyone, if you will, but I like really 
take one person and it's like, you have to deal with me every day. I'm sorry. <laughs> and one of my most recent uh, students that I mentored, um, I love telling her story. Uh, I think she was a, a second year in, at UCSB, University of Santa Barbara. Um, she was about to withdraw from school. Uh, was in a very mediocre relationship, <laughs> to say the least, and was working like at Panda Express. And she wow. interviewed for my department. And at the end of the interview, I was like, all right, do y'all have any questions? And I had mentioned like my background and she asked me one question. It wasn't a crazy question. She just like, oh, can you tell me more about this? Right? I know something about my background. And me seeing her interest and like her eyes light up, like, hold on, tell me more about you said you said this thing. What what is that? Made me go. All right. Are you interested in actually a different position? Hmm. Right? She went from that once again that simple question, right? Just being willing to ask a question. Where so often we don't want to ask a question, right? We don't want to seem like we're trying hard or the, whatever other mental models we have in our heads. Um, but that simple question led to her working directly with me. She then went on to becoming the president of her sorority, not getting anything below a three point nine becoming a graduate assistant at USC, finishing her master's, all having it paid for, and now as a professional in the field. Wow. I mean, so it's like that single moment of, uh, whether it's called like humility or openness of just asking one question, set her down a completely different path. I mean, so, so often we either aren't willing to check our own egos or even go, hey, Jordan, can you help me with this? You know what I mean? We, we want to ask, right? <laughs> or go, hey, do, do you mind talking? You know what I mean? Like just being willing to take that one step. You never know um, the great relationships you may have or the past or that next resource or being able to build genuine relationships. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it's, that's just holding so many people back is go ahead, ask your coach that question. You, you know what I mean? Or ask that mentor or that professor or your spouse, ask them that question that you're really um, maybe potentially holding you back. You know what I mean? So it's, it's so huge. Yeah. Yeah, showing interest in people and just being able to kind of develop authentic relationships is something that is so undervalued and it's also so hard to teach. So there's only one really great book that I know about on this. I'm sure there are more, but the one that I know is um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Have you ever read that book? No, I've not. There's this, it's like, it's like the building block business book that everybody in business always falls back on, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And they kind of like walk you through how to be an empathetic person. And it can be very unsettling for some people to read these types of books to say, and like his advice is when someone's talking, you should listen to them. <laughs> be, be agreeable, be empathetic, understand what they're going through. And like, it's such simple advice that you'd almost think like this can't be, it can't be that easy. And yeah. so oftentimes when I'm mentoring someone or coaching someone on this and I'm trying to make it more simple for them, I say, just focus on being of service to the people in your life and then watch all the good things that happen. Because like very often, and you know, I'm in the real estate business, so I talk to a lot of real estate people, they're looking for their first deal. They're trying to get deals mm -hmm. done. They're cold calling. They're trying to go out there and, and, and ignite relationships. And I'll yeah. often try to ask them to refocus on their own orbit, your teachers, your mentors, mm -hmm. your pastor, your rabbi, your, your best friend's mom, your aunt. Think about all those people in your life that need help from you for something. could be as simple as mowing their lawn or helping them with a charity event, doing any kind of service. And service. 
make, making that a habit just automatically leads to, to good things happening. You don't even have to go ask because people are going to be showering you with how can I help you when you have that mindset for them. And um, this happens in a jujitsu academy a lot. So I'm interested in your take on this. Um, so often in, ju in jujitsu, in, in some academies, people don't even know each other's names. Yep. You know, they come in, they're like, oh yeah, that guy. Oh, you know that guy? You know that guy who comes on Tuesday nights? You mean Bud and bro? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Those are the good oh, You know what I'm talking about? The big guy. He always wears the blue gi. Blue gi guy. Yeah. And so when I'm talking to, to teammates, I say, I want the first thing I want you to do is go memorize everybody's name. Know yes. their name. Know what they do. Yeah. Know like what, they, what their wife does. Just get to know them. Watch what happens off of that. Just like see if yeah. that helps you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there was this great story. As I was having this conversation in my gym, with one of my good teammates and a very good friend of mine, someone overheard us talking. And they said, dude, you're a realtor? I just sold my house. I didn't even know the guy that sold my house. I 100% would have given it to you. And he looked at me and he's just like, dude, you're right. I was like, of yeah. course I'm right. I've been doing this for 15 years. I, I, it's just like these simplest things. So I'm so happy to hear you like, you know, in, across your profession too. So- uh in your role, like in your world as an athletic director, assistant athletic director at this university, mm -hmm. how is the jujitsu brought into it? Are you promoting that? Is this a, like, have you brought both of your aspects of your life together? So it's, it's how I discipline my students. I, no. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I haven't completely merged the worlds, if you will. Um, but naturally, like from coaching, that's how I lead. I kind of lead from more of a coaching standpoint than I guess a purely a leadership standpoint, even though obviously there's overlap. Um, but yeah, it's, I think the, the biggest way that there's overlap is how I promote my staff, like promotions and reviewing people, right? Because we're talking about who deserves to get promoted to blue, purple, what have you, and how do I promote my employees here? That's probably the biggest overlap because the biggest thing I'm emphasizing with my students and professional employees is Technical skills can be learned by almost everyone. Mm. Not only that, but as technology advances, your um, demonstration of technical skills is going to be less, I guess, uh, effective. So what I mean by that is, let's say I go, all right, you're in charge of opening my whole entire facility, right? And you go, great. I've done that a lot of times before. I have it in my head. Therefore, I know how to do it effectively. Well, then a year comes by and I go, all right, great. We now have tablets and I actually have an opening and closing checklist. Well, if that is what you were basing your competence on was the fact that you're good at opening and closing. Well, now I can give that tablet to someone off the street and now they could do your job and now you may feel less than. I mean, so something I try to emphasize with my employees is, yes, you're going to be promoted um, or get your next job because of the technical skills, but truly what gets you that position or gets you that promotion are those interpersonal skills, right? Mm -hmm. And interpersonal skills. Same thing. For jiu-jitsu, and I'm a big proponent of this, this is probably the biggest thing I harp on, um, is you might be able to get from my belt to blue belt purely just being remotely technical, right? You, you know the techniques. Blue to purple, technical, but we're going to start looking at how are you as a team player and a leader. Once you start talking about brown and black belt, I can't promote someone who is, for lack of better words, an asshole. You know what I mean? Mm. If you're 
only showing up when you have competitions, if you're going hard on the person when it's only their second day and they're still learning and not allowing them to even work techniques, if you are uh, never uh, staying after to help with cleaning up the mats or um, and introducing someone to a technique and taking your time and showing patience and explaining different concepts to someone instead of getting frustrated and walking away, I'm not gonna, you're, you're not getting promoted to those upper belts. I mean, because mm. at that level where we start talking about brown and black belts, you're looked at as leaders in the community, whether we like it or not. Like we can say like, oh, that just means I'm skilled. At, but naturally when you hold certain positions, and this is goes for all areas of life, when you hold certain positions, we assume that these people are carrying themselves a certain way, right? So for me, I can't attach my name to someone knowing that they may go visit another school and tarnish the 10th planet name or tarnish my name. <laughs> yeah. He'll hook three white belts and showed up late and then was talking while the instructor was talking and all these other things, you know what I mean? So for me, and that's probably the biggest overlap is when they were talking jujitsu or me promoting employees, yes, I want you to be technically sound. Of course, you're going to need that as you continue to go up. But if you're not working on your communication, your leadership, your patience, uh, your ability to lead and listen um, and empathize and all these other pieces, you're, you're going to, you're going to be hung up there. You're going to be wondering why am I not getting promoted to purple or I mean to brown belt or black belt. And it's like, well, it's cause yeah, your technique is there, but I don't trust that you're going to represent that belt or us or me in the right way. You know what I mean? So that's probably the biggest overlap I have between the two. Yeah. Very, very well said. Um, does, does your team at work know and understand your jujitsu? Is it something that you talk about? There's probably not a single meeting they've ever had where I didn't bring it up at least one time. <laughs> right? Actually, when I when I interviewed here five years ago, uh, they had like an open panel and had a you know open panel and interview uh, with the panel. And I said, "Oh, how do you handle things under pressure?" And I always made the joke. I'm like, "Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot easier than being choked by someone." And they're like, "What?" I'm like, "I do. I do jujitsu." <laughs> So like the, the pressure here is nothing compared to being in Jeremiah Advance's full guard when he's throwing up rubber guard. <laughs> That's pressure. This is just a little stressful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I always draw that reference of, yeah, like things could get tough here, but imagine trying to defend yourself from being choked. That's... That's a whole different level of pressure. So, and someone just looking yeah. at me like I'm a madman. Well, well, but, uh, well, now we're now we're treading back into into my book territory because this is something that I'm writing about as we speak. Um, the pressure, you know, the pressure of life, the pressure of work, dealing with stressful situations, and how jujitsu really does prepare you to say it's and, and just the longer that you do it, it it really does help in all areas of your life to be, I, I, everything I do, I always compare back to jujitsu. My wife will often yep. tell me like, sometimes we'll be driving and someone will have road rage and I'll just like laugh at them and smile and, and yep. wave. And she'll be like, how do you stay so cool? I was like, because I, I don't care. You know, like what is yeah. the good, what is going to do? <laughs> There's no danger really here. Yeah. It's like that, the yeah, worst that, thing that could possibly happen in the road rage is that, okay, so he cuts me off. He brings me to the side of the road. What's he going to do? If he, if he has a gun, I mean, I'm not going to get out and fight him. I mean, even if I get out of the car, I'm not even going to attack him. I'm, my jujitsu yeah. is going to slow him down and diffuse the situation. Exactly. And every time that I negotiate, because, you know, most of my life is negotiating, whether I'm negotiating a salary with someone, whether I'm hiring someone, firing someone, negotiating a deal. Every time I'm across the room from them, my jujitsu, it's like it kicks on. And all of yep. a sudden, I'm sitting there doing business jujitsu. And I'm like looking at them and I'm thinking to myself, 
God, I feel like I'm rolling right now. You know, like the, the, the ebb and flow yeah. of the conversation and just them yeah. saying things and me being able to just be cool, cool under pressure. Yeah. So yeah, I feel you on this. This is, uh, yeah, I always called it like a verbal jujitsu, but yeah, that's verbal. literally, it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's exactly that. Yeah. That, that, that it's, it's the role when you shake hands, that's, that's this, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then as you go, it's the feeling out period. And then it's like, right, here's my lane. Let me try to get them into my lane. And all right, I get their lane, but I'm pretty comfortable over there. Let me start showing them that I know what I'm doing so that we can bring it back into where I want it to be. And um, yeah, that perfect balance. And, and once again, being able to empathize and or know what their intentions are um, that allows you to be more effective and maybe get that win. Yeah. Are you, um, how often are you teaching at your academy? So I 100% lock in on at least one day a week, 100% lock in mm -hmm. on one day a week. Um, that probably average during normal times when I don't have a fresh newborn and crazy work probably like two times a week <laughs> yeah at least two times a week and then um if i'm in there then obviously I'll, automatically if i'm there i'm automatically coaching even if i'm drilling with my students i'm automatically coaching but yeah, yeah. my classes are every monday and then um during normal times it'll probably be like a monday friday or monday thursday the last person i spoke to on this podcast on the subject of teaching and education in jiu-jitsu was john danahar we spoke extensively about his background as a uh, as a doctoral student or a master's student in philosophy at Columbia, and yep. how his his teaching ability of being able to teach jujitsu, I personally believe he's the best jujitsu instructor or teacher or communicator I've ever heard. You know, and I've taken his classes, and I hear the way that he speaks. It's like it's not by accident that he's so good. And I spoke to him yeah. about his the education of becoming an educator. And so I'm just kind of interested on your, of being this, you know, your doctor, master's student, how has the, 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 the learning of learning helped you to be a jujitsu, better jujitsu teacher? Yeah, for sure. And yeah, yeah. Dunher is obviously like, you can't argue that he's not a good, good teacher. You can see the results. Um, but yeah. I always see a difference like between coaching and instruction slash teaching. Like once again, there's obviously overlap, but there are people who are great instructors, like can run a well-organized class of people from white belt to black belt and have it run smoothly. That if you were to put them in a coaching setting as in we're competing, they may not be the best, right? Mm -hmm. And vice versa, there are people who are great coaches or even great competitors where you go, all right, organize this class and make sure that the person isn't being left behind and but also the person at the top is being challenged and they're not as smooth with it. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've been continuously trying to make sure I'm bringing over is make sure that I'm running a class that our people who are upper level belts don't feel bored and engaged, but also the people who are, whether it's their first day or second week or just getting started, um, are able to feel that they're developing, but also getting pushed, right? Because in the beginning, it's tough, right? We know you're, you're not doing well in the beginning. <laughs> For the first few months or even first few years, you're, you're not doing well. So it's very easy to get discouraged, right? If you don't feel like you're improving and you're not going to feel like you're improving in regards to, I'm not getting submissions. You're not, probably not going to get subs for a while, right? So it's like, how do I make sure that I'm engaging my students to make them feel like, hey, yes, you're not perfectly landing every single technique, but remember, you were only at 5% of the whole entire series we did. Now you're at 20%, right? Mm. So it's really focusing on those micro uh, details or micro improvements when it comes to the newer students and for our upper level students, it's cleaning up those micro details. I mean, so, yeah. so often as you continue to go up, you start 
you know, you start becoming comfortable with the game. So you don't have to follow every single rule, if you will. So it starts getting a little sloppy. Well, it's like, well, if you're going to get to black belt, they're going to exploit those details that you're missing. You know I mean, mm -hmm. so uh, I'd probably say that's the biggest thing is knowing how to engage with those different levels and um, yeah. make sure that I'm carrying everyone's attention so that they don't feel like, all right, here we go. We're going over arm bars. Right? Sure. All right. I really, the, I really like, like this. I, I really like um, this theme. It's something I haven't heard before. I've thought about it in different ways, but coaching versus teaching. Is this a like an original idea that you've thought a lot about? Yeah. Because um, I, I, so I started in soccer, so I was always, my dad was a coach, so I was always around coaching. And then getting more into education, obviously, once again, there's obvious overlap, right? But there's definitely a disconnect in someone who's a good teacher and someone who's a good coach. Um, once again, they're, they're not it's not, uh, they're not one in the same. Right? And it could seem mm -hmm. like a semantics, right? Like, eh, no, I think, the same. I think it's important. I had always thought about it in terms of, I kind of put coaching and teaching in the same bucket. And I've always said like, just because you're a great competitor, doesn't mean that you're going to be a great coach or uh, coach teacher. Right. But I actually like the differentiation between a, someone who's a great coach and someone who's a great teacher, mm -hmm. because yeah, you know, you could be an incredible teacher Someone who, like you said, is great at organizing that class and getting the team. And, 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 and I even would put this in, and I think about it through the lens of being a great, you could be great at jujitsu and a terrible business person. You know, oh, like, yes. oh, yeah. You know, once yeah. you decide that you want to open a jujitsu academy, you are now in business and you have to sharpen those business skills too, whether you like it or not. You got to pay the rent, you got to pay the insurance, you got to. So, um, yeah, I really like looking at it through the lens of coaching and teaching. So that's a really interesting. Yeah, and topic. I think as soon as people start, uh, more coaches start looking at it in that way. Like I listened to the last podcast, I think uh, with Hennessy, and that's his last name, mm. um, yep. out of North Carolina. And he's a great coach. He's able to light that fire, but also like you can hear from how he talks and his passion. He's also a great instructor. You know what I mean? He's yep. able to, it seems like he's able to break down concepts, whether it's technical wrestling concepts or just conversation concepts break it down to a way that you're like, Oh, I connect with that. I engage with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think as more coaches start seeing it as coaches, I mean, jujitsu athletes, they start seeing it as great. I need to work on being a good athlete. I need to work on being a coach, but I also need to work on being an instructor and then also a business person. That's will also contribute to the development of our sport. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause right now there, we do still have somewhat of the, I'm a world champion or I'm well-known in jiu-jitsu as an athlete. Let me go open up a gym. And it's like, you can do it, but just know you're going to have to put in a lot of work on the back end that some of them may or may not be fully aware of. Yeah. Um, speaking about that, I've heard John Dinahar talk extensively on that. He makes sure that his students are also great teachers, you know, that not only can they perform, but they can teach. And I've, I've witnessed that um, when taking classes from Gordon Ryan, phenomenal teacher phenomenal yeah. teacher. I mean, there is a, there is a skill and an art to being able to teach. And, uh, and I think that it's, it's one of the most important things for, for getting better is when you're teaching people, when you're able to coach people and teach people, you're learning it so well. And, um, yeah. I, uh, I just very, very fascinated by what you, I could probably talk to you for another, a whole nother hour just on the subject of education. I'm so interested by it. And, uh, yeah, I did not well. appreciate it as a young person. But uh, honestly, as I started to see the benefits of it as I got older and started using it to, honest, frankly, to make money, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know, you find more yeah. success with these, with, these, with these principles. And I'm not motivated by money. 
by at, at all, but it's a byproduct of doing the thing that you love great. Correct. Exactly. And it's I a love it's I a measurable piece things. that you can go, okay, I'm doing yeah. well because I, I know this. Yeah. Yep. The business is doing better. The employees are happier. The customers are happier. You're, you're doing more deals. You're creating great relationships with bankers. You know, I'll give a shout out to my, uh, my CFO who's sitting in the next room next to me right now. And I did three deals in the past uh, 10 days. I closed two. And in all three deals, the bankers pulled me aside and they said, that, that Eugene Parisi who works for you, he's unbelievable. He's, he's, un he's so good. We don't ever work with people like this. And I was like, you know, it's just, that's what you live for. You live for those moments when your team is performing at the highest levels and you get that validation from the outside world. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I especially love that just because I feel like I'm in control of myself. You know what I mean? So when I do a good job, I'm like, well, yeah, because I have full control of it. But the fact that you could potentially have influence or put someone else in a position that makes them get the best out of themselves. Because once again, you have no control over their level of success beyond once again, you putting them in a position, give them the opportunity, uh, give them the resources, and then it's them. So uh, whether, yeah, once again, whether we're talking jujitsu and having students be able to successfully teach, right? And then potentially even have them be able to go, oh yeah, they hit the move that I showed them. Like it's, it's awesome. You're like, oh yes. You know, for me, yeah. it's a whole different level of excitement when 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 we kind of get those moments and it's yeah, yeah, teaching moments and learning moments are not one and the same. So it's yeah, it's awesome. Jarrell, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it on that. Very, very well said. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure connecting with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Um, please uh, keep me updated on on everything that you're doing. And if there's anything that I can do to be of service to you, let me know. Uh, I have, uh, for those of you watching this, um, Jarrell's Instagram pulled up. And for those of you listening, it's Garcia Grip at G-A-R-C-I-A-G-R-I-P on Instagram. And uh, like I said, just a real pleasure getting to know you and speaking with you. And I, and I hope we can do it again. And we'll, we'll, next time we'll really dig in on education and jujitsu and, and how to be a really great coach and teacher. Awesome. I really, really appreciate your time. And yeah, like, I think I sent you a message like probably over a year ago, like, Hey, I see what you're doing. Please keep it up. Cause we, we need more uh, people like you and just people of sharing once again, the connection of jujitsu to other areas of life, whatever it may be. Um, so I really appreciate you and what you are doing for our community and in our community. So, and hopefully get to share the mats one day too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you are in the New York area, please let me know. And if I'm in California, I will absolutely reach out. Sure. I'm there about three or four times a year. So we'll, we'll definitely connect. Awesome. All right, Jarrell. Have a great day and I will talk to you soon. Awesome. Appreciate you. Have a good one, brother. See ya.